2: Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Listener Mail. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host, Robert Lamb, is not with me today. So I'm going to be recording uh, some responses to Listener Mail solo. But Rob should be back with me again tomorrow for our core episode. We read Listener Mail every Monday on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you would like to get in touch, but you've never done it before, why not give it a try? You can reach us at contact at Whatever you want to send is welcome, especially if you have feedback to a recent episode or if you want to provide a correction or just add something interesting to a topic we've discussed. Whatever it is, send it our way. Contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Let's see, I'm going to kick things off with this message from Jeff going a ways back to our series on the beaver, a surprisingly fascinating animal. Jeff says "Greetings, science humans in regards to your episodes on beavers I wanted to call your attention to a fantastic short film from the 1950s featuring real life parachuting beavers previously thought to be nothing but urban legends it's called fur for the future and it is well worth your time. And so the video Jeff links here is a short educational film strip from about the year 1950, in color, produced by the Idaho Fish and Game Commission. And it's about the process of live trapping and relocating fur-bearing animals like muskrats, beavers, and martens. And yes, just as Jeff says, uh, when it gets into the part about beavers, we see footage of a real actual historical program for catching beavers that were considered a nuisance in one area and transporting them to new habitats by dropping them out of airplanes with parachutes. I loved this short film. This, this is the kind of educational film that was parodied to great effect on The Simpsons with like a, Think Where You'd Be Without Sand or the one about how you would soon regret wishing to live in a world without zinc. Uh, in this one, the, the narrator paints a a lyrical almost heroic narrative of national identity based on the concept of fur. Uh, in fact, can we insert a bit of audio from the beginning here?
3: Fur is important. Fur is a resource of our country and our time. We value the skins of fur bearing animals for their beauty, their warmth and their durability. The farmer followed the fur trapper across the continent. The trapper explored the forests long before the logger came. Cities were built, and rivers and streams were harnessed for power and irrigation. Along with timber and water, fur is an important resource.
2: So Jeff's email continues... The narrator has one of those classic paternal nature documentary voices and frequently reassures the audience that everything is just fine, despite the alarming images in the film. Uh, Yeah, Jeff's right about this. There are moments where uh, we see muskrats being lifted in and out of uh, cages by their tails, and the narrator is like, oh, it's just like God put a handle on this animal. It's his tail. You know, it's fine. Muskrat doesn't mind. Uh, Jeff says the rationale for airdropping beavers into the countryside was that it was necessary to restore areas where beavers had been hunted out of existence, yet were too difficult for rangers hauling large crates to get to on foot. Operation Beaver Drop is clearly the highlight, but there is more to love than just plummeting rodents. I hope you get a kick out of it. Keep rubbing the fur, Jeff. Well, thank you, Jeff. This was a divine recommendation. If you listening now would like to go look it up, it is again called Fur for the Future, and it I think you can find it on what looks like the Idaho Fish and Game YouTube channel. Uh, for a bit of context, I... I wanted to find out the background on this. So I looked up some articles on the the history of the beaver airdrop project, and I found a great article that was a a piece for Boise State Public Radio by Samantha Wright, published in January 2015. Uh, And I think most of the other articles I could find basically referred back to this one. So I think this is the main reported piece on it. And so I'll I'll try to streamline and summarize the story how I can. It, It looks like the story goes back to right after World War II when a bunch of people started building homes around a place in Idaho called Payette Lake and a nearby town called McCall. But this was a place occupied by beavers, and of course beavers and humans uh, can get in each other's way. They're both land and waterway engineers and developers, and they can cause problems for each other when they get too close. So the job of dealing with the beaver problem fell to an Idaho Fish and Game employee named Elmo Heder. Heder thought he could find a win-win resolution to the situation because, while the beavers were causing problems around the the area of McCall, there was a place far out in the wilderness called the Chamberlain Basin that would greatly benefit, they thought, from the reintroduction of beavers. So he wanted to get these beavers over there, but the target area was wild and undeveloped. There were basically no roads. Heder considered taking the beavers on pack horses or mules uh, but to quote from a report header made to the Journal of Wildlife Management excerpted in this public radio piece, quote, Horses and mules become spooky and quarrelsome when loaded with a struggling, odorous pair of live beavers. These problems involve further handling and too frequently result in a loss of beavers. So, transporting beavers in boxes by horse or mule caused problems for the horses and mules and uh, and, uh, much worse problems for the beavers themselves. But Heder had another solution. He said, what if the beavers could be moved by airplane, making use of the vast reserves of surplus parachutes left over after World War II? Uh, So he tried to come up with a design for a box that could be dropped from an airplane with a parachute and automatically release the beaver upon landing. And the first idea here was sort of ingenious, in my opinion. It would be a box woven out of willow material, uh, which the beaver could then chew through to escape after landing. So you take advantage of the natural beaveriness of beavers and let them just chew their way out of a willow box. Uh, But the problem was that the beavers would start chewing their way out as soon as they were placed inside. So this led to concerns that they might escape the box while still inside the airplane, which uh, you can imagine the problems there, or also while falling through the sky. So that idea was no good. After that, they ended up designing a box with a mechanism that would automatically pop open upon impact with the ground. And then they tested the box repeatedly with an older male beaver who ended up being the first uh, part of the first group actually transported to the Chamberlain Basin by this method. Uh, And along with, with three female beavers, that beaver did establish a successful colony in the new location. And in the end, a total of 76 beavers were dropped from the airplane. All but one of them survived the process, and they said got right to work with Beaver Business. Maybe let's hear how they describe the Beaver airdrop in Fur for the Future.
3: Parachutes are attached to cargo lines, and the boxes are stacked in rows along the waist of the plane. Ten boxes to a load, twenty Beaver ready for the flight to Mountain Meadows. The plane makes a careful approach, ready for the drop. Now into the air, and down they swing, down to the ground near a stream or a lake. The box opens and a most unusual and novel trip ends for Mr. Beaver.
2: So I'm not sure if this kind of beaver relocation program is something that conservationists would engage in today. Uh, the article by Samantha Wright has a note at the end saying that, you know, today people are more often just asked to tolerate the presence of nearby beavers near their developments. Um but whether or not we would actually try to relocate beavers like this today, uh, it does appear appear that if you are going to relocate beavers, this was a pretty successful method. Uh, and they, they say in the article that the descendants of those beavers are probably still thriving in the basin where they parachuted in back in 1948. So thank you for the email, Jeff.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
4: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done
2: Okay, the second message I'm going to look at today is in response to our series about the Ig Nobel Prizes, specifically the studies on boredom in students. This message is from Renata. Renata says, Hi, Joe and Rob. I'm so glad you chose to talk about papers on boredom from the Ig Nobel Prizes. I have often thought about writing to you to suggest a topic on boredom, and I agree with all the points you made. Here's my brief history with boredom and what I think it means. When I was in elementary school, I remember a commercial came on TV with a line like, Are you stuck in a boring job? And I said to my mom, Having a boring job would be great. This memory sticks in my brain because what she said next was a piece of wisdom that I didn't understand at the time and would take decades to unravel. She said, You don't want a boring job. It's miserable. Fast forward to a job I had as a consultant where the work I was supposed to do wasn't ready yet, so I started to do other work, only to be scolded. My boss said that until the work came through, my job was to sit at my desk and look busy, but not do any work, which was apparently my dream job since childhood. But it was miserable. My mom was right. At one point, my boss said, I can tell that you get bored easily, which she meant as a criticism, and finally relented and gave me the task of fixing form in a spreadsheet. Fast forward again to the pandemic and uh, at this time a lot of people were talking about how much free time they had and how boring it was. For me it was a time in my life that I was at my busiest working 60 to 70 hours a week and I was miserable then too and jealous of people who had so much free time that they were bored. My boss, who thought that I got bored easily, probably meant that I abhor boredom, which I do and don't agree with. I think our assessment stems from conflating a few types of boredom that you touched on in the episode. In my own experience, there are at least three types of boredom. Type number one. Experiential boredom, when the experience you are having is boring. I spent all of elementary school in this state, and it was a time that I was most creative and introspective. This boredom feels uncomfortable at times, but like you mentioned, for kids in church and school, figuring out how to engage your mind and get inspiration from things around you is a great skill. Uh, she says, "I love your theory, Joe, about entertainment being the opposite of this state, a stupor of having thoughts put into your brain for you. A good podcast show, book, etc, should bore you a little bit in my opinion to let your mind wander and react to what you 're experiencing i'd love to hear your thoughts and research on how this relates to childhood development, especially ADhd second type of boredom, Renata says is interstitial boredom." Uh, those bits of time you find yourself with nothing to do, like at an airport or waiting at the doctor's office. As an adult, these are some of my favorite times. It feels like I found a loophole that lets me not have to be an adult for a few minutes, and I have the freedom to either try to fill the time with a book, doodling, etc., or to be present in the space as it is. However, this boredom doesn't often happen at home, and if it does, it doesn't feel good, which leads to type 3. Existential boredom. The feeling that your life is boring and that you are a boring person. This is a bad kind of boredom. This is how I felt at the job where I wasn't allowed to do work because it leads to feelings of inadequacy and gives you way too much time to think about everything you did wrong in your life that led you to having a do-nothing job. The, quote, bored teacher might be in this camp, but my guess is that their apparent apathy usually has more to do with burnout than boredom. I don't believe the other two types of boredom typically lead to existential boredom, but maybe if they go unchecked over a long portion of your life, they could. Curious to hear your perspective. Thanks for taking the time to read my letter. and glad you're still making an amazing podcast. P.S. My current job is neither too boring nor too busy, thankfully. The very best, Renata. Well, thank you so much, Renata. Yeah, I think we could come back and do a series of episodes on boredom because there's a lot of uh, interesting research, ironically enough. To address your questions, uh, first of all, I I agree with your three categories there. The interstitial boredom is very common, I think, uh, even when you have a lot of absorbing activities on your to-do list. Sometimes you're just stuck. You're stuck in a situation where you can't really get to any of them. Uh, and I'm very glad to hear that you are able to make good use of these moments. Uh, I, I know other people in my family who have talked about this as well. I think my mom has talked about um, enjoying being at the dentist. because She can just kind of, you know, relax. <laughs> um, I admire the ability to find the good in those moments. I, I do tend to find these uh, periods really frustrating because I feel like, the things that I want and need to do with my attention usually require some kind of sustained focus. And if I know that I could be interrupted, you know, called back to the doctor's office at any minute and I'm listening for my name, it's like hard to force myself to get into that state of focus. Uh, With your category of existential boredom, I think this sort of highlights the link between the feeling of boredom And the feeling of meaninglessness, if you perceive what you are doing as without value or meaning, you are more likely to feel bored. But if that activity is not like waiting in line for 15 minutes, but say the job you have to do every day, it's easy to see how this can have a pernicious effect on our well-being and uh, could make a person question their self-worth in large part. We are what we spend our time doing, and if you spend your time doing something that you do not feel is meaningful, even if it's something you have to do, it will probably make you feel like you are not yourself meaningful. and I think this is one reason that it's important to to incorporate multiple meaning structures in our lives. Uh, you know you can't invest all of your sense of meaning in just one thing, especially not if it's like your job because if you are at some point stuck in a job that feels valueless and brings on feelings of existential boredom, You can have other structures like family and friendships and art and religion and hobbies and projects that are there to give you alternative routes to meaning. Let's see, regarding your question about childhood development and ADHD, uh, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to comment on that. Uh, I do think it's interesting that you mention the idea... uh, That a really good book, for example, should be just a little bit boring enough to let you occasionally drift out of the process of reading and let you reflect on what you've already read. And I think I, I really agree with that. While, you know, there are some books that are just totally effortlessly absorbing, you know, the things we would usually call page turners, at least for me. While I can absolutely enjoy a good pop thriller novel that just pulls me relentlessly from one paragraph to another, these types of books are rarely the ones that I look back on after I'm finished and think, wow, that, that was so interesting and valuable. I'm so glad I read that. Usually the books that I value the most in in retrospect – are the ones that take a little more effort to get through and sometimes would cause me to lose focus on the text itself and start reflecting on ideas that it raises. And this kind of connects to another idea about boredom, which is that it, it seems to me, based on what I've read, there's a kind of, horseshoe spectrum of experiences that cause boredom. And the dimension along which that horseshoe bends is that of challenge. So some things are boring because they're too easy. And other things are boring because they're too difficult. So you can imagine an adult would probably become bored trying to read a bunch of books meant for toddlers because there's nothing, there's no challenge. There's nothing to really stimulate the mind. But similarly, I think most adults would probably get bored trying to read a book on a technical subject they don't understand very well. Uh, Think of the way that you would probably get bored bored trying to do college coursework in a class where you are hopelessly in over your head. You would think in a highly challenging situation where, you know, you're, you're dealing with coursework that's way over your, your your head, that would be a motivating state that would, you know, cause you to get really into it and really, uh you know, really want to uh, focus your attention on the material and understand it better. And I guess for some people, sometimes it does do that, but I think a lot of the time, it just causes a, a feeling of frustration and hopelessness that makes one want to disengage with with uh, this this course material. You know, it's just like you, you feel like you're never going to understand it and thus any attempt to understand it becomes intolerably boring. And so thinking about this horseshoe sort of connects in my mind to the idea, uh, the, the psychology concept of the flow state. You know, a flow state is a pleasurable state of intense focus and absorption in an activity or task that is usually evoked when we are operating consistently near the peak of our abilities. So the task demands exactly what you are able to give. If it demands too little, then you get bored because you're not challenged. If it demands too much, you get frustrated and want to quit, uh, which I think either is a form of boredom or feels similar to boredom. I think a lot of really good, uh, highly valuable activities like a really good, valuable book or a really good, valuable project are things that are right beyond the scale of challenge where it's easy for us to get into a flow state. They are a little but not a lot more challenging than is comfortable. We're able to make progress through these activities or in reading this book or working on this project, but occasionally we do get frustrated and confused and pulled out of the zone and forced to reflect on our progress in some way. I think those are a lot of the the most valuable things you can do or sort of right in that sweet spot. It's just a little more difficult than is comfortable and thus is just a little bit boring. Also, I just wanted to mention a, uh, a couple of papers related to boredom that I was reading that I thought were interesting. This is not directly related to anything you raised, Renata, but while we're on the subject, uh, I can't recall if this has ever come up on the show before, but there was a paper published in the journal Science in the year 2014 called Just Think the Challenges of the Disengaged Mind by uh, Wilson et al., This is the kind of charismatic result where I'd be cautious about putting too much weight on it until I see it replicated several times. But it does look like at least a handful of studies have found similar things. So I think this is probably basically sound. Uh, the authors here took a bunch of research subjects, college undergrads, for what that is worth. This, that may color your understanding of uh, this result. But nevertheless, uh, took these research subjects and put them in empty rooms without access to their personal belongings. So you couldn't, you know, read a book or look at your cell phone or whatever. Uh, and these would, uh, they would be put in these situations for periods of between 6 and 15 minutes. And the subjects were forced to sit and think for a few minutes with nothing to occupy, nothing external to occupy their attention other than their thoughts. In some tests, they were told to think about whatever they wanted. In others, they were given a specific, uh, like a list of prompts maybe to think about a specific subject and then allowed to plan in advance what they were going to think about. And after this experience, participants rated, uh, they reported high rates of boredom and about half, said that they found the experience more unpleasant than pleasant. So it was a divided, divided feelings about this experience, but about half were like, I didn't like that. A lot of participants preferred having something to occupy their attention, like reading or music would much prefer that than just being forced to sit with their thoughts. Uh, so that seems pretty, pretty understandable, that most people would rather have a positive experience than an experience that might induce boredom. But the really surprising result uh, that was in one of the the subsequent studies published in this this paper uh, was that in the 15-minute condition, the researchers found that when they gave participants the ability to push a button to administer a mild electric shock to themselves, a lot of bored subjects pushed the button— uh, there was a large gender divide in these specific results uh, uh, among this cohort twenty five percent of women and sixty seven percent of men decided they would rather voluntarily choose to receive an electric shock than just sit there and be bored and I think this has interesting implications for our our understanding of boredom as a motivating state. I mean, it makes me wonder about the adaptive utility of boredom as a, as a motivation to escape the state of being bored. You know, it, it seems like it must serve some kind of important purpose, forcing us to sometimes even do things that we expect to be painful or do things that we don't want to do just to get out of the situation of being bored. Now, there's an important caveat to this, which is that this finding has been applied to the concept of boredom, but technically it was about forcing people to be alone with their thoughts, which might or might not have been perceived by the subjects as boring. Some, some subjects might have found it you know, uh, quite entertaining, but I think it's a fairly safe assumption that probably a lot of the people who shocked themselves did so because they were bored. And this raises a question like would the same number of people shock themselves as a result of any kind of negative experience or is it something specific about boredom or at least what we assume to be boredom? I I looked at another study that was uh, following up on this. This was by Chantal uh, Naderkorn et al., published in the journal Psychiatry Research in 2016 called Self-Inflicted Pain Out of Boredom. And this study followed up by asking participants to watch a film and they had the ability to choose to administer mild electric shocks to themselves while watching. And this was, uh, so there was like a neutral control film. Uh, there was a film designed to elicit the negative emotion of sadness. And then there was a monotonous film designed to elicit boredom. And they did indeed find, quote, participants in the boredom condition self-administered more shocks and with higher intensity compared to both the neutral and sadness conditions. So it does look likely that a lot of people would rather experience mild physical pain than boredom and that even the negative experience of pain was judged at least in advance sufficient to alleviate boredom. Uh, That raises another question for me, which is, uh, I wonder how effective it was. Like, did the people who gave themselves a shock feel less bored afterwards or is the shock only an illusory promise of, of avoiding boredom? I don't know. But anyway, to wrap this up, uh, thanks again, Renata, for the email and for raising this issue again. Ironically, I do find the psychology of boredom to be quite fascinating. So that's going to be it for today's Listener Mail episode, but we will read more Listener Mail next Monday. Uh, On Tuesdays and Thursdays of each week, we do our core stuff to blow your mind episodes, which are usually about science and culture in some way. Uh, Wednesdays, we do a short feature called The Artifact or The Monster Fact. On Fridays, we do a series called Weird House Cinema, where we uh, each week pick a movie. A strange film, good or bad, well-known or obscure. As long as it's weird, we watch it and we talk about it. And on Saturdays, we run an episode from The Vault. If you are not subscribed to this show, why not go subscribe now? We're called Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or even just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
0: Stuff to blow your, blow your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite
2: shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.